introduction to his screenplay, The Walls Came Tumbling Down, Robert Anton Wilson writes, As I have tried to prove in my nonfiction and dramatize in my fiction, what we perceive depends on what we believe possible. And as the latter changes, the former will change. Some new perceptions, like most new life forms, will not survive evolutionary testing. Others will come to dominate the human world of the next century. Hello, how are you? Welcome to a super, another super special bonus episode of the Hilaritas Podcast. I am your host, Mike Gathers. Hilaritas Press has just released The Walls Came Tumbling Down, a screenplay by Robert Anton Wilson, with a new forward by Gregory Arnott, and a new afterward by Bobby Campbell, and Alan Moore's eulogy for Robert Anton Wilson. In this episode, I discuss the book and more with Gregory Arnott. Gregory Arnott, welcome to the Claritas Podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. I, I still haven't quite figured out what I've uh, done to be worthy of this, but thank you. Oh, I'm flattered that there's a worthiness level. I don't know what to say about that. You wrote the foreword to the latest release of The Walls Came Tumbling Down, the latest Claritas Press release. Did I say that all right? Yes. Yeah, uh, I, and, I did. Well, and Ross has said you should interview Gregory for the release of the book. I, I've always thought of The Walls Came Tumbling Down as a minor work, or not always, but for most of my time reading Wilson. Uh, along with reality is what you can get away with. Uh, this is, they're both failed film scripts. Uh, from about the same time period, the late 80s, when I believe he had moved from Dublin to Los Angeles. Uh, right. He says in the introduction, he's in L.A. And the book is dated 97, but I think that's just the publishing date. The script was actually uh, 88-ish. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I believe it was. Um, I mean, that's what he tells us is 88. Now, I do bring up the question of how much of it was revised before it was published in 97 in my foreword, uh, because some parts of it seem very, very, very informed by the mid nineties. Interesting. Well, that okay. So little known fact in my exploits of purchasing documents off eBay to build the Robert Anton Wilson fan site with Robert Anton Wilson essays and such, I purchased a supposedly never before seen film script. And uh it was like 20 or 30 bucks, which was a large purchase for, for those days. And and hmm. it turned out to just be what the walls came tumbling down um in kind of a, a script what I imagine would circulate around Hollywood. Um I, I I don't know how to describe it. It was kind of a cheap paper but it was printed on, but it was like the first few paragraphs were identical. And I no longer have that document. Um, I want to even say it was dated 1987. I'm completely make, making that up, but uh, I ended up mailing it to Bob when he was on his deathbed. I sent him like a care package of old essay or old green eggs and things that I collected. Mm -hmm. And I threw that in it. And so I've never seen it again. Um, That's, Okay, that's really neat. <laughs> yeah, no. So I wonder if if it was dated correctly, we could cross check it. But the first, the opening was identical. I I mostly was like, oh, mm. this is not something unseen. This is just a uh, circulating copy of the walls came tumbling down. Yeah, and I just as a side note, I have to say how much I respect you know your heroic efforts to preserve so much of. Uh, Wilson's writings you know as a young spoiled millennial when I was getting into Wilson's you know not hard copy stuff um I really took for granted how much I was able to find online and never really put together the effort that went into that archivist activity 
Yeah, so. well, it's it's been a while. That kept me going in my corporate uh, years. Um, that was something to do at work. <laughs> and, and now uh, we have Martin Wagner. Well, that's a different story, but Martin's got his uh, .de website that has taken the helm there. And you were the one, you, you found the sex magicians, right? I, um, so at the time Wilson died, we were, there was a fairly uh, lively community on uh, tribe.net, which was kind of a burning man social media website of sorts that had different like subgroups. And so there was an eight dimensions or eight circuit group that Entro was running and a Wilson group. And when he died, um, like that week, I want to say, somebody just posted the book. Or maybe they mailed it to me directly, but it was through tribe.net. It was a PDF of of the book. And, I, you know, we'd heard of it, but we'd never seen it. And uh, there it was. So it, it found me. Well, um, I, I really, really love that book. I've read it, I think, at least three times. But just super charming um early wilson uh in that first blush of magic and everything uh and i kind of view the walls came tumbling down as a, almost a progression or a the other end of that progress that mm. that began with the sex magicians uh, you know, this is Wilson writing fiction. Uh, the magic is much, much less pronounced. Uh, you're getting into, you know, the Wilson that we see in Everything's Under Control, which I, I think he even admitted that that was kind of, a, you know, written for the audience of the 90s. Uh, okay, with, so kind of a conspiratorial base? I hate yeah. to use that word, but is that the idea? Yeah, and very into that idea of, you know, the government is watching you and the CIA are very powerful and there are, you know, Majestic 12 and this idea that there's alien involvement with our government and vast underground bases and black helicopters. The idea of alien involved with the government is, um, I wonder if that's resurfacing. Uh, <laughs> certainly, certainly the topic of aliens is up it, it is um however i'm going to go ahead and say that i find the conspiracies involving the government and uh aliens to be much much less entertaining nowadays so <laughs> um they're 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 pretty boring compared to fox Mulder's world there you go so talk to me about um well, I, I said it to you in my email. Why should we read this? It's a screenplay. Ugh. Yeah. Um, and why read any screenplay and to make this, you know, sometimes it's the only option. The likelihood of this being optioned itself into becoming a film is slim um, at this point in time. That doesn't mean it'll change, but for right now, I would say that this is your only opportunity to experience the walls came tumbling down. So I guess that's going to be my first argument is completism. Uh, you know, Wilson wrote it, so it's worth reading. He thought it was worth publishing. Um, and I think that it actually, you know, reading plays and reading scripts is a way of experiencing different types of media and different types of thinking I, I i you know i always stress to my students that just because you don't understand something at first doesn't mean that it's not worth reading uh and you're not going to understand this as it's meant to be presented you're supposed to be watching this on a screen uh but you know you're still getting some of it and the way that it's presented plays with your imagination. So you're forced to visualize and hear the sound effects uh, in your own mind. And that makes it a very intimate uh, process between the writer and the audience of one. 
I like that. There's something about the um, what popped into my head is just the act of creation, like creating it within my head, reading the cues and things like that. Um, yeah. And I mean, he even gives you this. It, it, it's almost like an apologia at the beginning of the book where he has how to read a film script. Right. And he, I think he's taking the idea that he wants people to read this very seriously. And he's trying to, to explain in his clearest terms, how to go about this. Uh, but, you know, he also closes how to read a film script with, I have never shared the popular view that screenplays make harder reading the novels. And I hope that those, that these brief explanations, you will find this script no more murky than Finnegan's Wake or Gravity's Rainbow. So Wilson's very aware <laughs> that this is not the ideal way to consume this. Hmm. Well, what I'm 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 going to confess I haven't read it. Just part of why I'm genuinely curious about your answers here. But as you you started out, you mentioned what is it? Reality is what you can get away with. Yes, and I think I remember. No, I remember reading that like in a bookstore early on without buying it. I don't know if it was more than one visit to the bookstore or what, but um, that would have been thirty years ago, maybe or twenty five. And um, but I, that would have been early on when I was reading Raw, and it really, um, I can't say what I got out of it, but I definitely had a, a psychedelic-like effect in terms of uh, blowing some walls down. So I'm curious, like, what you got out of The Walls Came Tumbling Down when you read it? Uh, when I read it, I had actually... Um... <laughs> just divorced my first wife uh, we got married at a young age uh, and I was living on my own and I was kind of in this phase of just eating up everything I could about uh, magic and you know I was trying to fix my life in the most illogical way and I read this and I, I finally picked up the walls came tumbling down and it had a effect on me because you know this is the story of a man's breakdown michael ellis uh and his transformation into something else uh and it's also partially the story of a marriage uh because you know in my forward i mentioned who's afraid of a virginia wolf because both michael ellis and his wife who i believe is named kathy uh they're both academics they're both hard drinking academics uh they needle each other and it ends with the dissolution of their marriage uh that's not the final ending of course that would be a rather disappointing <laughs> film something that we can all experience but uh it, it you know those similarities and uh, really impress themselves upon me but if you go back and read uh, Wilson's foreword to the publication, he says that Michael Ellis is meant to be an everyman. Mm. So. So um, one of those Joycean everyman characters, but it sounds like this specific story hit you at the right place in the right time. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think nowadays, because every year I teach uh, John Higgs's uh, Stranger Than We Can Imagine, his history of the 20th century to eighth graders um, as best I can. And I, I dwell a lot about how did we end up here? How did the world change since I was born so much? And I'm sure everyone who's at my age or at any other age thinks the world has changed profoundly since they were young. But I, I feel, I guess it's the or it's the sin of hubris, but I feel like in 2023, I have more right to say things have changed a lot <laughs> in the last couple decades. Um, but yeah, so I, I think how Wilson goes about combining all of this is it's really telling how he names Michael Alice. And it also kind of tells you about how this film would have appeared. 
And he tells you in his introduction that Mike Wallace comes from a Monty Python episode. And in fact, it comes from an episode in the fourth season. And the name has nothing to do with the episode. I, I looked online. It doesn't seem like anyone knows where it came from. It might have been a reference to a small time uh, Northampton politician at the time. Uh, but the episode begins with Michael Palin as a doorman outside a department store. And the first thing that happens after you watch these crowds on this London street is a car pulls up, he opens the back door, and Terry Jones gets out and drag as a very prim English lady. And she just very calmly like takes him by the shoulders and knees him in the crotch. Um, he doubles over. He takes this pretty well. Uh, and then you see some people exiting from the department store with plaster and bandages over their noses. The next thing that happens is Eric Idle shows up on a bike. Uh, Michael Palin's doorman helps him off and then throws the bike into the street. And then you see that a bunch of the patrons are hitting their noses on the glass door of the department store and being led away to presumably have rhinoplasty uh, where they leave with the bandages. It doesn't make sense. Um, it's extraordinarily <laughs> absurd. Uh, and I think that I, I, I tried to say this in my foreword. If this film had ever been made, it would have divided audiences. Uh, some would have thought it was brilliant, but some people would have thought it was ridiculous. Like, I'm not, I like just, you know, I, I, people have a hard enough time with David Lynch and this is weirder in places than David Lynch. Mm. Is, is that what lends to a, or what would you say the create the, the creation of that effect is that makes sense? As someone who I, really what? likes Go David ahead. Lynch, I, I think that it puts you in a state of cognitive disassociation, which a lot of things come out of it. Discomfort can come out of it. Uh, I, I first watched Eraserhead while uh, my, or my daughter's mother was pregnant with her. And watching Eraserhead and having that mutant child show up <laughs> Um, and that was a very disturbing, disturbing thing uh, for me at the time. But at the same time, I really appreciated that I was getting such a visceral reaction out of this movie, which at time also almost bored me with how nonsensical it was. Mm. Um, um, say more about that. How, how did it bore you? I, I I actually think that Twin Peaks would be a better example than Eraserhead, although just some of the sequences of, you know, the the ugly industrial, the the city emphasis, um, you know, those those almost repelled my mind into a state of just, OK, what comes next? Let's get through this. Uh, but like uh, Twin Peaks. So if if you are a Twin Peaks aficionado or if you know anyone uh, most of us have very strong opinions about season two. And mostly that opinion is it it sucks. We found out who killed Laura Palmer. Um, you know, there's a few good episodes, but it's really just a bunch of wool gathering. It's Mark Frost and David Lynch being very self-indulgent. I really, really love season two because there's, again, there's that state of where you are interacting with the product, but it's put you in a weird state to where you are now yourself kind of entering into it and reflecting. It's almost like it, it causes you to daydream. Mm. Nice. I, I, th I think there's a very similar like drug and action figure set in one of uh, Philip K. Dick's novels <laughs> uh, where you, you, you take this drug and you play with these action figures and you go into a trance like state. Um, right. In the three stigmata, Palmer Aldrich, I think, I think, yeah, that sounds familiar. That's nice. I, I mean, that's trippy, but interesting. Yeah. Um, and I also it, think that. Oh, sorry, sorry, Mike. No, I'm just curious if this cognitive dissonance is introduced early in the book, early in the screenplay, to help just pull the rug out, so to speak, right off the bat. Or spoiler alerts, but yeah, it. Bad. 
it starts off um, with, you know, these shots of Michael Ellis uh, zooming down the road, trying to escape something. He's in obvious distress. And then we get snippets of conversations that we'll find out at later points in the script where they come from. And then it's him and his wife talking with Simon Moon, uh, you know, uh, Wilson's reoccurring kind of self-insert character. Although I would say the Simon Moon in The Walls Came Tumbling Down is the least like Wilson, uh, as far as I know, Wilson and Simon Moon. And I, I'm sure some people could debate whether Simon Moon is a self-insert, but at least I, I would argue that at times Simon Moon is very obviously a character based on Wilson himself. Um, and you find out that Ellis is a, and now this is where I'm going to lose all credibility. I think he's a <laughs> physicist um, in the script. Uh, and Moon is a psychologist, his wife. And this is also where I'm going to prove how sexist I am because I don't even remember. I'm not even going to pretend to remember what she does, but she's an academic. Um, but uh, Moon and uh, Ellis are having this discussion and it goes around skepticism. And you find out that Ellis is very, very, very uh, hard-nosed rationalist, um, mm -hmm. kind of the type of people that Wilson and and love to pick on. And I, I'll admit, I, I, I love to pick on them too. <laughs> you know, uh, Michael Shermer side cop crowd is that the the uh, the the guy who always ruined the episodes of UFO Files, as I used to refer to Michael Shermer, <laughs> just took away the fun of it all. Um, uh, you know, the Richard Dawkins crowd, uh, the new atheists, I guess, is what the proper term would be. But, uh, you know, the, these people who, who model themselves as champions of science, uh, but they decide to go after people who believe in Bigfoot, which I feel there's more important and pressing things for science. Shermer, I, I think it was Shermer that was on uh, Rogan's podcast with uh, Graham Hancock. Okay. Uh, he took all the wind out of my sails around Graham Hancock. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and that is one thing uh, that I will say is that the skeptics have done valuable things before i mean uh the amazing randy uh you know he exposed a lot of frauds and a lot of people who were bilking people out of their money um but there are times where i do somewhat feel like oh you're just spoiling the fun at this point aren't you um <laughs> i you know and there's and i also get where there's a big problem with the phrase i want to believe you know, um, wanting to believe something doesn't make it legitimate. I want to believe that everyone I love and I are immune to all diseases and that God thinks I'm special. But, you know, I'm not sure that that is an appropriate way to approach life and reality. That's what, um, boy, there's a whole rabbit hole here. I, I, I get what Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson are trying to say and uh, there's a lot of merit to that story i don't know if you're familiar with that whole thing i'm somewhat familiar with graham hancock he's the guy who talks about ancient archaeology and yeah yeah okay he's got he had a netflix special that was recently done recent released and it was um well the way it was edited it was highly over dramatized and he just plays this big victim of the mainstream archaeology um but uh yeah he kind of believes there's ancient I, i'm gonna botch all this but that there's ancient uh technically advanced races and essentially they got wiped out he partnered up with graham randall carlson who uh basically believes a comet hit during the ice age and created a rapid melt of the ice which went to rapid flooding which gives you also obviously a lot of flood myth but that just kind of created a, a mass extinction that wiped out a lot of these civilizations you know a dramatic rise in oceans and things like that um that's the gist of it i'm not really 
a detailed person in that regard. But before he got together, before Graham got together with Randall, he was kind of doing his his thing and he was on Rogan with Shermer and Shermer really took him to task. And it, it was clear that Graham was just running on belief. He wanted to believe. I mean, there's evidence, but there's not enough to tip mainstream science. And I realize it takes the mass market of science to tip. You have to have, uh, you know, for them to change paradigms is going to have to take overwhelming evidence. And I think that that's coming, perhaps. Yeah. But, but uh, Graham is obviously overly invested in it from from my point of view. He, he has a good story and I think he might be will probably be proven true. But he's at this point selling it as truth when it's just yeah barely barely yeah. and i i think that's really indicative of the world we live in um today yeah, with point. with the internet um you know it it's really hard for me because i try to be uh you know honest with myself and I also believe very seriously that we are stuck in our own BS, our belief systems, uh, which Wilson gives credit to David J. Brown for coming up with the abbreviation BS. Uh, But at the same time, I'm navigating this world as best I can. And there are certain uh, belief systems that do seem to me like utter and complete bullshit. And I, I don't, I try to put myself in those people's headspace. I try to exit my reality tunnel and understand how they got to where they are. But at the same time, it I I, I can't. <laughs> and it it worries me that maybe I'm becoming too rigid and neophobic. Um, but at the same time, I also think there's a lot of danger in being so neophilic we end up doing absurd things um if that makes a little bit of sense <laughs> it, it does I, I guess i was i go two different directions with all this because i i tend to think that we're always kind of not aware of how full of it we are mm-hmm. and uh, it's like that's i i guess to me that never-ending skepticism like you always have to be questioning is is this just bs um and yeah i don't know i don't have any answers here yeah one. and i i don't have any answers either um but, so. but, you, you, but you you turned it into infophobic and infophilic you're okay and that that makes sense it opened me up to a different perspective and that's kind of a theme of the book though correct is that infophilic yeah. versus infophobic do you want to say some more about that about, yeah maybe? so you you have the evolution of Michael Ellis from this hard-nosed rationalist type, uh, this Michael Shermer type, um, into someone who ends up um, experiencing visions of his past life as a, uh, a Roman soldier. Uh, that's actually where the first title of the man who murdered God comes from, is he has these repeated hallucinations of himself as the soldier who uh, pierced the side of Christ on the cross. Uh, Longinus, I believe, was in in the extra Christian mythology outside the Bible was the name of that soldier. Um, but he, he has hallucinations of that repeatedly. Eventually, he gets abducted by aliens, or he hallucinates getting abducted by aliens, He has a lot of flashbacks towards his earlier life, his involvement in nuclear research. Um, And this all leads to this, uh, you know, psycho-spiritual transformation that ends with him being something very, very different at the end of the script or the film. And I, I, it's a, it's a better form of himself, but it's, extraordinarily different than than michael ellis and i think that's kind of how it ties into this this you know wilson continuing this monty python joke uh that michael ellis is nobody the whole time michael ellis is just a name uh that covers a half hour of absurdity uh of course the film would have been longer than a half hour but the episode but you know 
uh, what who we meet at the end of the book. That's the real character. Um, Michael Ellis was a MacGuffin. What's a MacGuffin? Uh, like the Maltese Falcon. Uh, you know, just this object that drives the plot, but isn't actually in and of itself that important. Oh, interesting. So. A little is that a little plot twist at the end there? Um, I I don't think I'm giving away too much of the plot. It's it's not really a twist because again, this isn't this isn't really like an M Night Shyamalan film where you need like a big twist uh, to make things interesting. Uh, the the whole film is a journey in and of itself, and you get to experience this very uncomfortable transformation, and it this transformation begins very early into the script. Uh, so I, I I don't think it's it's necessarily like a twist twist, but yeah. um, it's certainly a a change. Uh, you know, well, in a sonnet where the sonnet changes what it's the the tone of the voice it's called the volta so yeah there's definitely a volta in um the walls came tumbling down um but yeah i i think i think it's you're almost expecting it and if you're not familiar with wilson i don't think you'd really have any chance of knowing what it was going to be if you are familiar with Wilson, I will say this, uh, you know, what comes out at the end of The Walls Came Tumbling Down is, uh, you know, it's not as apocalyptic and spectacular as the ending to a lot of his books. And Fair in a way enough. that makes it more special. <laughs> Very cool. So that I guess that makes sense when you describe it like that. I do think of, uh, you know, the, the term woke has been all kinds of... Uh, ruined but this process of waking up which uh strikes me as a move from infophobia perhaps to infophilia waking up to more information yeah absolutely um you know at i i don't want to give away too much of the ending you know of this thing that's been published for 20 years <laughs> but <laughs> you know Halardos is republishing it so read the book uh you know but um, you've got my attention i definitely uh am interested at this point keep going but it's a very personal depiction of an infophiliac at the end of the script and in a way i think that you know, as much as we can learn from Wilson's nonfiction or something like Prometheus Rising that's written as a manual, I think The Walls Came Tumbling Down uh, definitely has a very unique kind of prescription for how to exist and how to engage with reality. A very optimistic uh, description, but I also think it's one that we can all strive towards. And I, I think that makes sense because, you know, Wilson, even if he didn't necessarily believe it was going to be made into a major motion picture, I think Wilson, when he wrote this, did mean for it to be a message that could be shared that, mm. you know, you wouldn't have to be a Robert Anton Wilson aficionado to appreciate what he's presenting here. I like that. I'm just taking all that in. That's uh it makes me think a little bit of the uniqueness. Like he would have known this is a different medium for me and I'm gonna approach it in a unique way. Um that's what's coming through my head right now, at least. Um well tell me how long you've been studying works of Bob. Okay, so I'm 32 still. For a little while and i first got interested in occultism when i was about 14. i had uh renounced christianity when i was nine because i was wow. told by a classmate that if i believe if i didn't believe in hell um which i couldn't reconcile the idea of an all-loving god in a place of eternal suffering 
And uh, this fundamentalist Christian uh, friend of mine told me, well, you can't be a Christian if you don't believe in hell, which, you know, yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, bummer. Like, thank you. I got a ticket out, um, which worked well for me because I always really cared for my stories of the Greek gods a lot more than I ever cared for Christianity. I was always a lot more comfortable with Hermes than Jehovah. Um, And Christ didn't really figure in that much to me. Uh, he just kind of made me sad when I thought about him. <laughs> um, oh. But uh, so I, I renounced Christianity. I spent middle school just kind of trying to believe in something, aliens, Lord of the Rings, uh, deism for a while. And I really cared about all of this, though, even though I didn't have a very, I, I don't want to say not, a, I didn't have a very good grasp. And I didn't have a lot of personal stake in what was going on because I couldn't believe in it. Um, so when I was 14, I was just like, okay, um, I've tried out all these other things. Uh, why don't I just go for the most absurd of all of them? And to me, occultism seemed the most absurd. So <laughs> How did you I, find that? Uh, you know, just, again, very strong interest in uh Greek myths, Lord of the Rings, aliens, all that can lead back to magic. And then you find out that there's real people who claim that they could do quote unquote real magic. And you're just like, yeah, this isn't real. (laughs) But (laughs) why do these people believe this way? So, um, you know, I was also a 13 year old who read the Marquis de Sade and thought it was hilarious. Uh, So I was a weird kid. Um, (laughs) But uh, (laughs) But, you know, getting into all of this, eventually, I'm very confused by it. At first, um, I'm just reading things around the periphery. By the time I'm 16, I become pseudo serious about it. And I try to start getting into Crowley, um, Austin Osmond Spare. Um, and I'm not doing very well at it because i picked up crowley 777 which uh you and oz talked about in your podcast which is a very handy book if you know how to use it but if you're someone just like what is magic about you just open it up and it's a book of graphs it's not it doesn't right. really help that much and there's a very confusing to someone who's never read crowley essay on gamatra in it and then reading austin osmond spare for the first time is what the fuck is going on <laughs> you know mm. I, I i'm I'm sorry for the language but no no that's great <laughs> i've never actually read spare but i've heard it's pretty wild it is it is yeah. uh you know once i think alan moore and promethea kind of said like austin Osmond spare is advanced reading in magic mm. um which i know kind of flies in the face of chaos magic and that school but um spare himself is you got to get used to it. It, it. He's like Blake or Crowley, you know, where you need to spend some time just bashing your head against that wall. And then eventually <laughs> you'll, the blurriness in your eyes will start to make the uh, magic picture appear. Um, nice. But yeah, so very confusing as I was really trying to understand what was going on. Um, and then I read Illuminatus and... Mm not only did it excite me in a way which i it, it made me believe that there is actually possibility of all of this even though it's a fictional work um but the way that he and shay wove in reality and fiction and um you know also reading alan moore and starting to really uh grok and reread Alan Moore I should say and like really meditated upon what his books had in them I started to appreciate that there's a lot to do with faking it until you make it Um, there's a lot to do with purposefully altering your reality Um, and I'm not sure that Wilson or Moore uh, would agree with that assessment of their works but that's how I took it and it's been it's been a time ever since so <laughs> nice um, well that yeah. i'd love to go in that a little bit more what you said they're faking it till you make it and my thought is um 
well, this is kind of a, a Wilson and Magic blended together conversation at this point. And you have one of the more interesting magical reading lists that I've seen. Um, I'm curious what magic means to you. I actually, there was a time a few years ago where I was with uh, Bobby Campbell and Tom Jackson, and I gave a lecture, a lecture, quote, unquote, you know, it was me in a hotel room with them and one other person talking, but, um, you know, it was a planned talk. <laughs> um, but I talked about Wilson and how Wilson's magic had affected me. Mm. And at the beginning of it, I said something along the lines of just like blank your mind and go back to childhood and hear the word magic. That's what magic is to me. Mm. It's not necessarily, you know, convincing your mom to let you not eat dinner and just eat cake or shooting fire out of your fingertips, but all the possibilities, um, all the goodness almost uh, encapsulated and all the ambiguity as well, um, all that sinister in it. Um uh, mm. and, and maybe here's where I sound like Graham Hancock with his ancient civilizations I, I i want to believe in magic too much although i find actually it's really hard for me to believe in it most of the time uh when you're going to work or you're stuck in traffic or uh you're congested or you know uh you have the debts coming in uh, it's very hard to believe in anything that's organizing other than the grim face of uh, Grodd, as they put it in Illuminatus. <laughs> um, but, you know, magic is, magic's the reason why a hundred years ago, no one could predict what's going to happen. And I don't really like that I said that, that sounds a little too hallmarky for me, but <laughs> magic is, is possibility, I guess. Mm. Um, I like that. It's, and it, it does have a lot to do with, you know, that most frustrating line of uh, Lieber all for me, uh, for true will on a swaged of purpose isn't always perfect. Um, working on your reality, working on yourself and not, again, not wanting to shoot fire from your fingertips, not necessarily calling up a demon to get back at your ex-girlfriend, um, but working to better yourself and be a more capable person. Someone who, to paraphrase Alan Moore, who things just kind of work out for, like magic. Mm. I don't want to ruin my your, your, your thing there with my thoughts, but... There's something about uh, all the possibilities being a very infophilic statement. Oh, um, I I hope I'm an infophiliac. I, <laughs> I I don't like a lot of things, and oftentimes I feel like uh, you know a Hindu mystic going around saying "netty netty," you know, not this, not that. Um, but I, and you know, I almost said there, you're not going to ruin anything of what I said. Please ask questions. That's that's the best way to go about this world. Um, I love conversations where it's mostly just asking questions of each other. Um, I don't necessarily want to just tell someone about my day, ask me questions about my day. Uh, and I'll find that I can actually give you a lot more interesting answers if you ask questions instead of just asking me to tell you something. Interesting. How do I make my world more magical uh do magic um <laughs> <laughs> um you know even if uh even if you're not familiar with magic um uh, i don't know do a tarot reading every morning uh do mm. the lesser ritual the pentagram read magical literature uh put more crowley and william blake in your life mm. um watch i don't know watch performance watch jean cocteau um watch david lynch get really like uh, 
Oh, sorry. Just get really stoned and watch the last episode of the second season of Twin Peaks and let yourself get really scared. I don't know. All those ways are ways of opening up the possibilities of the imagination. How do I fake it till I make it? Uh, I, I forget who it was, but someone once described magic as controlled schizophrenia. Um, like you, you start taking your inner landscape more seriously, um, which is very oh. hard, I think, for you know generally sane people um, to take our inner landscapes uh, too seriously. We're we're taught at a very young age that imagination is something for children, and then at the same time, all we do is indulge in it in less fabulous ways. Uh, you know, our obsession with social media is nothing more than our imaginations taking us over. Uh, but personally, I would rather be like that Italian man who lives as a hobbit um, than someone who's obsessed with my Instagram image. Uh, and then that's my own point of view. And I'm not saying that people shouldn't be allowed to be obsessed with their Instagram image. But, uh, you well, know, there's something about harnessing your imagination, if I'm following it here. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, imagination is the most important part of magic. Uh, Coleridge, you know, differentiated between fantasy, like fantasizing about getting a raise or something. But imagination is where all new things and all good things come from. Uh, so imagination is certainly a magician's most important tool. Uh, that's where it's all going to happen. I, I mean, I, I've, I've really tried a lot of the magical techniques and everything, but sadly I've never been able to call up a demon that I could like touch or pick up. I don't know why I would want to pick up a demon, but, uh, but you know, that's, that's not where any of this happens. It all happens in the imagination. I guess it's what makes it really fun and interesting is eventually if you fake it and you follow those little shadows at the corners of your consciousness, sometimes those shadows start to dance and take on shapes of their own, seemingly unbidden. Hmm. And then what? And then you profit, Mike. So, or you go insane. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but uh, it certainly makes life more interesting. I I appreciate that. I I get this. Why did I get, I think when I was talking to Lionel Snell, I had this sensation as well, but um, the writing of Douglas Adams and how he mm. per personified everything. That's like a magical world for me, you know, where the waves run back and forth on the beach and just everything is alive and, and, and uh, conscious. Well, I, I think you'll appreciate this, that Douglas Adams was who I was reading before I decided that everything was so absurd that why not just try magic? Um, you know, I, I consider Douglas Adams as wonderful imagination, but also a staunch atheism. And I was just kind of like, well, that's that's a little boring for me. So instead, I'm going to try a different model um, of reality. And uh you know, and that that's actually the book I gave out to my favorite students for Christmas this year was Hitchhiker's Guide. Oh, nice. So that I, I that's a good gift. Yeah. Well, I, what, go ahead. You were no, I, I wasn't gonna say anything oh, important. Okay. Well, I'm just uh wondering, is there anything I haven't asked you you'd like to talk about today? Um I guess I, I should make a correction uh, about my introduction because I, I do say that Wilson's uh, preferred tor er, term was neophobic and neophilic, whereas actually in his introduction to The Walls Came Tumbling Down, that's where he changes it to infophobic or infophilic. I actually have that backwards. That's what I say in the introduction. But anyways, I made a mistake. Um, 
And then secondly, I, I kind of point to Lynch as the best comparison to what The Walls Came Tumbling Down would have been like as a film. And I, I think I was wrong. Um, I tend mm-hmm. to compare bizarre cinema to Lynch too much. Um, but I really think a huge influence on uh, The Walls Came Tumbling Down, especially the dialogue the uh between the main characters when it's not in this weird flashback uh you know our character isn't being abducted by aliens um but or talking to his dad and his dad's a roman senator but i really think a huge influence on how this was written was mary hartman mary hartman um the 70s anti-sitcom uh with lewis laffer louise laffer as the main character um it, it just if if you watch go watch an episode of Mary Hartman Mary Hartman before you read the walls came tumbling down and I think you'll kind of understand how Wilson wanted some of it to come across better interesting I'll because I check that yeah go ahead I, I think it was I, th- I think it was one of my elder brothers in the fellowship of Wilson or elder sisters who told me a story about um, hanging out with Wilson and he needed to get home in time to watch Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman during the seventies. So when I remembered that and like remembered the show and, and was thinking about the walls came tumbling down, I, I realized I kind of missed an opportunity to point out what I, I now believe was a major influence. Yeah. That fascinating did you find the michael ellis monty python connection yourself um i no. he he mentions it in his introduction oh, he, mentions it he in says the that the name comes from monty python and i i as a kid i was a big monty python fan uh fan and i looked into the episode and i i remembered the opening scene because i mean when you're 11 there's not a whole lot funnier than uh man and drag kneeing a guy in the crotch um, <laughs> but um, sticks in your memory yeah and just i did re-watch the whole episode to make sure that i wasn't missing like a side character named michael ellis but i it's just the name of the episode it has nothing to do with what goes on in it and i did read also that and you know taking his protagonist's name from that episode um, and for this film that was never made. I think it's pretty fascinating that uh, someone wrote that Michael Ellis, the episode was actually made up of gags that were rejected from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. How fascinating. So yeah, we have our, our character from a movie that was never made based on scenes uh, from that never made it into a movie. Right. So. That, an I- iconic movie at that. Oh, yeah. Ah, fascinating. All right, Gregory, is there anything else? Uh, I mean, a little bit about aliens and uh, Wilson's oh, approach to I want to, to hear them. this. Yes, please. Uh, a lot, you know, again, I think that it's uncanny how much uh, the 97 print of the walls came tumbling down echoed the very popular idea of aliens in the 90s but you know that idea of aliens was probably burgeoning if not already formed during the 80s and it's just most of the media i consumed about them came from the 90s but i do think a lot of wilson's uh writings about aliens are fascinating because of who he really kind of listened to about extraterrestrials um Say more about that, who he listened to. Uh, You know, and he makes references to one of my favorite books because it's about my home state, uh, John Keel's The Mothman Prophecies. Uh, And The Mothman Prophecies, if you've only seen the Richard Gere movie, um, is actually a really interesting, neat nonfiction book that's probably fictional. Uh, John Keel is good friends with Gray Barker, who uh, is from a town about 40 minutes from here. And Gray Barker was, uh, he was very important in what I guess we now call ufology, uh, or the, the early days of ufology. But it also appears that Gray Barker was a guy with a 
much better sense of humor than a sense of journalistic ethics. Mm. Um, and he might have created a lot of the things that he reported on. And so there are accusations, you know, and probably well-founded in a lot of ways that John Keel's The Mothman Prophecies is made up of falsehoods. Uh, however, when I've recommended it to anyone or anything, I, you know, I always say it's in the tradition of Charles Fort, um, which I think that's a tradition that's worth keeping in mind. And uh, even if a 20th of what is in the book is based on anything real, that's still stuff worth thinking about, pondering over. Uh, you have the story of Woodrow Derenberger, um, this businessman who believed he was in contact with an alien named Indrid Cold, um, who, again, his, his story takes place about 25 minutes from where I was born. I, I know on the road where it supposedly happened. And he and Cold, uh, Wilson does write about him. Uh, he and Cold had uh, these weird adventures where Cold would take him into his ship and take him to his planet of Lanulos. And the thing is, is that everything about Derenberger seems like this wasn't something he would do. He was just a businessman with a wife and kids. Um, you know, maybe it was all a put on, but that put on ended badly for him because his wife left him. His kids weren't in contact with him, I believe. And he moved away uh, to Indiana until he came home about a year before his death and just because he didn't want the publicity and all the weird things you read about him, you know, again, I, I'm sure that Keel was fictionalizing a lot of it, but still something happened. I guess, even if it was a prank going spectacularly wrong, um, I believe something happened there that's worth investigating. But even more than that, with Wilson and Aliens, uh, Wilson was pretty well read, I believe, in Jacques Vallée, uh, his work. Um, and Vallée, and I'm probably mangling how you actually pronounce his name, uh, you know, this computer scientist who worked with Dr. Alan Hynek on Project Blue Book, um, who has this really fascinating uh, theory that these so-called extraterrestrials, whatever they are, are not extraterrestrials. They have been with us um, since the beginning. Uh, if you look at, quote unquote, like more authentic UFO encounters or alien encounters, they they follow a fairy logic. Um you know, mm. it, the aliens aren't here for a mission of, it, it's more like you're in a dream than anything where, you know, these aliens are here to, uh, I don't know, take over the government or become the lizard rulers of all mankind or something. Um, but uh, he he draws the connection that, well, these types of encounters have been going on long before we had the model of aliens and spaceships and things like that uh fairies demons just uh you know nature spirits and i in my personal opinion in cosmic trigger uh you know jacques Vallée, uh when he meets him at the crowleymus party uh mcmurtry's crowleymus party uh, I think he treats Vali with more respect than pretty much any other figure in that book as far as respecting his opinions and not really questioning his sanity or credibility, which he does with pretty much everyone else in that book. He also treats McMurtry really well. <laughs> huh. And so the idea is that, so if we think of in a, UFOs as alien, alien, let me rephrase that, as aliens, as fairy spirits. Um, have I got that right? Something like that, except yeah. I would go so far as to say that, you know, they're, they're creatures of the imagination, but just okay. because they're creatures of the imagination doesn't mean they're not real. Ooh. Um, you spend as much time, if not more, in your imagination as you do in any sort of objective real world. Um, you know, I, I, I think it was the musician Sir Richard Bishop who once said that uh, 
you know, people need to spend a lot more time thinking about what's going to happen after they die. Um, I'm not, I'm not quite going that far, but, um, you know, people need to spend a lot more time thinking about what they're thinking about. Um, because these, these heroes, these monsters, these shadows and these little, uh, you know, these fairy lights, they all, they all have a lot more control over us than we think they do. Mm. Um, and they all figure into our lives at least as much as your elementary school principal did. So. That feels like the perfect place to end it. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, Mike, I hope this made sense and wasn't. This was, this was great, Gregory. It was fun talking with you. Gregory Arnett, thank you for your time. Thank you. And thank Christina and Rasa and yourself for allowing me to be a part of this. That concludes the episode. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you to Gregory Arnett for taking the time to chat. Thank you to Richard Rasa of Lertos Press for producing the book and this episode. Our next regular episode, releasing on the 23rd of April, will feature professional drummer and chaos magician Zach West on probability engineering and the musical circuits. Until then, I am your host, Mike Gathers, signing off with love and cheerfulness. Amor et hilaritas. Thank you.